0: you would turn in your bibles to 1 John chapter 3 let me read our passage verse 11 all the way through chapter 4 verse 6 1 John 3:11 through chapter 4 verse 6 for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brethren need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. of error. Uh, Early in 2020, Kobe Bryant's helicopter crashed because the pilot made a mistake. He flew into a fog bank that left him confused and disoriented. In the fog, he could not tell right from left. He couldn't even tell up from down. And not a single passenger survived. And all because the pilot couldn't fly in the fog. Now, there are moments in the Christian life when we are in the fog, confused and disoriented. There are moments for most of us when we are unsure of our standing with God, when we can't see the truth. We can think we are doing all the right things and yet still nonetheless feel a sense of distance from God feeling unloved, feeling uncared for. Now, on the flip side, uh, I think we would all admit that there are moments when we know we are falling short, where we know we are not walking as we ought to walk, and yet we don't give much thought to it. We're not convicted. By convicted, I don't mean like going to jail Conviction is a word we use largely in Christian circles to speak of being overwhelmed with a sense of the the wrongness or sinfulness of our own heart. So even as Christians, there are are moments when we know we're not doing what we ought to do and don't feel that that conviction. And this is, it's being in the fog. It's a confusing and a, a dangerous place to be. And if some of you are saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm never in the fog. Well, good for you. And uh, I think eventually you will be. I think it's basically just part of living in a fallen world. It's part of not being Jesus because you aren't him. There will be moments in your Christian life where effectively you are flying in the fog. Now, First John, all the Bible is helpful. All the Bible is inspired. It's all the word of God. First John is an unusually helpful letter in getting people out of the fog, John wrote, in fact, so that we would have fellowship with God and with one another. He wrote so that we would have great joy in God and in our salvation. And he wrote so that we would know that we, Christians, are, in fact, Christians. That's what the letter is for. So we need this letter. Now, interestingly, when we think about about 1 John, if you're someone who's been around the church for a while, if you're not someone who's been around the church for a while, you might not know this, and that's fine. But for those of you who maybe you've read 1 John before, studied 1 John before, one of the first things that comes to your mind when you encounter this book are the three tests, three tests to determine whether or not you are really a Christian, sound doctrine, especially right teaching about Jesus Christ, His His Godness, His His deity, as well as His humanity, so uh, sound doctrine, Uh, right living, uh, walking in holiness, another test, you know, genuine Christians uh, overall, they're going to they're walk in, in holiness. So, sound doctrine, right living, and then what we've been singing about, what we're going to talk about more in a few minutes, brotherly love, a genuine and practical affection for brothers and sisters, in the, in, especially in the local church and the family of God. These are, are helpful tests, and we see all of them in our passage this morning. But perhaps this section of 1 John, more than any other section of 1 John, Uh, teaches us, reminds us that 1 John is about more than just those three tests. In our passage, he focuses on that third test, brotherly love, but then I think he changes directions. And, And the topic overall is still assurance, but he moves in the direction of talking about the work of the Holy Spirit and the centrality of the Word of God in the Christian life. So, again, the overarching theme of 1 John is certainly that of assurance, knowing you know Jesus. We want that for you. We want you not just to have eternal life, but to know that you have eternal life. We think that is is normal in the Christian life, to actually know you are a Christian. And, again, 1 John is here for that. If you want that kind of assurance, if you want to know how to fly out of the fog, then you'll study these verses carefully You'll listen carefully. And in our passage, John tells us to love God's people. We were expecting that. That's the third test. You know, nothing surprising there. But he also exhorts us, at least implicitly, to walk by God's spirit, to walk by God's spirit and to submit to God's word. So love God's people, walk by God's spirit, submit to God's word. Hey, that sounds like a sermon outline. Let's go with that. All right, now I'm going to spend most of my time on those first two points, so be aware. All right, first, love God's people. Love God's people. Now, that, there, there is certainly, certainly, certainly a sense in which we are to love all people. Right? That's the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan. I love uh, Galatians 6.10. Uh, Paul doesn't use the word love, but he says we're to do good to everyone. Now, he follows that with especially the household of faith, but he begins with do good to everyone So you've got the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. You've got uh, Galatians 6, 10, do good to everyone. In Matthew 5, Jesus even says you're to love your enemies. So basically, there's no one on the planet you ought not love. That's the teaching of the Bible. But that's not the love that John is referring to here. Here, in 1 John, he is emphasizing the love that Christians have or should have for one another. He introduced us to this idea in chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. All right, so we're introduced to that idea of brotherly love right there in the second chapter, but he really unpacks the test of love in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, just listen to this again. It, it, uh, the text speaks for itself. For this is a message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, notice in those verses the emphasis on the brothers. Now, brothers and sisters, remember... Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. But everybody knows there's women there, right? So we get this. When the Bible speaks of brothers, it's being gender neutral. It's referring to men and women, right? So notice how much attention he gives to loving the family. Verse 11, we should love one another, one another. Verse 14, because we love the brothers, right, the brothers. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 18 whoever sees his brother in need right so obviously we have a special and unique responsibility to care for and love our brothers and sisters within the church family and in fact this is exactly what jesus said in john 15:12 he said this is my commandment this is my commandment and he was speaking to his disciples that you love one another as I have loved you, and what did He just do? He He he's, He washed their feet. I mean, He served them. I want you to love. I want you to love the way I have loved you. And in fact, in John, He looks back not to the washing of feet, but to the shedding of blood on the cross. This is how you are to love. Now, this is the time in the sermon where I take a step back and I give you an illustration, right? To just bring this to life. But I don't have to do that because John has given us his own illustration. Don't be like Cain. That is the illustration straight from the Bible. Verse 12, we are not to be like Cain. Raise your hand if your name is Cain. Okay, you're about to see why no one raised their hand. All right, we've got to go back to the very start of humanity, of human history. Adam and Eve, they bore Cain. Cain was their firstborn son, their firstborn child. Abel was their second. Now, when these brothers grew up, undoubtedly having been influenced by their father, Adam, they, they brought offerings to God. Cain was primarily a farmer. So for his offering to God, Cain brought uh, a part of his harvest. Abel, primarily a shepherd. Abel brought the, 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 uh, the firstborn of his flock. So they both made these offerings. We learn this in Genesis chapter four. Now, we know from Hebrews chapter 11, verse four, that there was a fundamental difference in their offering, namely the heart of the offerer. Abel made his offering by faith. Abel trusted the Lord. Abel loved the Lord. Abel was honoring the Lord, who cares more about our heart than the sacrifice, so Abel made his offering by faith. Cain did not make his offering by faith. I don't know exactly what was going on in Cain's heart, but there was not faith at work in Cain's heart. And as a result, and we see this in Genesis 4, as a result, we're told that God favored Abel's offering over and above Cain's offering. Now, this bothered Cain. When Cain recognized, when Cain saw, when Cain heard that God favored Abel and his offering more than Cain, Cain became jealous and he became bitter. He became hateful. He became spiteful. And finally, in a stroke of evil, he murdered his brother Abel. Abel's acts were righteous At some level, Cain knew that, and that the difference between Abel and Cain grew envy and jealousy in Cain's heart, so much so that that hateful heart burst forth in murder. Now, God knows everything. God saw what happened. But to test Cain, God came to him and said, "Uh, where is Abel, your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? Now, my guess is at this time in human history, there wasn't another Abel. I could be wrong, but I, I, I think this is the only Abel. But God says, where's Abel, your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Betraying his own wicked heart. Betraying an indifference, an indifference to his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? That was his attitude undoubtedly before he murdered him. He hated him in his heart. He hated his brother. And so there's your illustration. Don't be like Cain. Now, John is saying here, though, more than don't murder. I hope that's obvious. Like Jesus in Matthew 5, John is warning us against nurturing a spiteful, bitter, unforgiving, unkind, unloving heart attitude toward one another. He's telling us not to be indifferent to one another. And and I like that idea of indifference because it really seems to resonate with that answer, that question, am I my brother's keeper? Do I really have responsibility for the people sitting around me on Sunday morning? Am I really my sister's keeper? That, That indifference, that indifference is married to hate. We shouldn't go through life not caring whether others exist or not. We shouldn't be so preoccupied with our own lives, with our own trials. Let me say that again. We shouldn't be so preoccupied with our own lives, with our own trials, that we fail to notice the brother or sister standing right next to us. Hatred is more than an act of outrage against another person. It's the cold indifference we can show one another, even in a loving church like ours. We are our brother's keeper. The world is filled with canes, verse 13. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. Didn't we just sing that? You know, when the world despises us, take it to the Lord in prayer. I mean, Christians throughout history have known that. I prayed for the believers in the Maldives this morning. Imagine being a Christian on that little tiny island nation of the Maldives, they know what it means to say the world hates them. They live that every day, right? We shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. We shouldn't be surprised when they treat us poorly or rudely. The world may strip our rights away and question our motives and say all kinds of false things about us. Be prepared. The world is full of canes, but... It's supposed to be remarkably different in the church, not a little different, you know, not like we're just a little, we live a little better. No, fundamentally, structurally different in the church of the living God. And here's why. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Right? Love is the fruit of spiritual life. Love blooms when you've been born again. If God saved you from your sins, you are a new creature in Christ, and therefore you love the brothers and sisters. You, as a Christian, you can love like you've never loved before. Now, let me say the same thing in a different way. If you want to love, you have to be born again. If you want to love, you have to be born again. The non-Christian can do a lot of great things. Man, the non-Christian can show care and concern. And because of what we call God's common grace, because everyone is made in the image of God, non-Christians can do wonderfully generous things. But non-Christians cannot love as God loves. The non-Christian cannot love because fundamentally, whether he'll admit it or not, the non-Christian cares more about himself than God. Again, of course, non-Christians can serve others. They can do good for others, but they can't love because love comes from God. And that kind of love is a love God gives only to his children, to those who have been born again. Love comes from a heart that has been changed. Love comes after the new birth in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know this is true and you struggle to love the way you should. I mean, some of you, for whatever reason, you you know you struggle to love other people. You have a hard time thinking of others. You know what it's like for practically every waking thought to be about yourself. How are people thinking about me? How are people uh, assessing me? Am I pleasing people? Uh, what, what do people think of me? Did, did someone notice that good thing that I did? I hope no one noticed the bad thing that I did. You are trapped in the prison of your own self-interest. Now, I know that, that Christians can be tempted in this direction. I recognize that. But for those of you who might say, yeah, that really is me. I really am trapped in a prison where all I can think about is myself. Well, the question is, how do you break out of that prison? And the answer is, you must be born again. You must have everlasting life. You've got to have the new birth. You've got to have God change you from the inside out. And and the only way that's going to happen is if Christ is your king, because only after submitting yourself to Jesus, God in the flesh, trusting in his death and resurrection, that's the only way he can become the sun around which you orbit instead of walking through life as if everyone should be orbiting around you. Your only hope of loving is being born again. And so I know it's early in the sermon, but I hope it's not too early for me to call you to Christ. If you've never come before, come to him today, come to him now. And I guarantee you will love in a way that you never, ever loved before. Whoever does not love abides in death. To love, you have to live. And to live, you must turn to Christ. Look at 1 John 3:16, and let's see what love looks like. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. All right, so that's love in a nutshell, laying down your life for others the way Christ laid down his life for you. Got that? Easy peasy. All right. So what might this mean for you? Laying down your life means rethinking church. Laying down your life means rethinking church. Many of us grew up thinking about church as a building or as a schedule of events. Church was something you went to. It was a program to attend, right? In 2020, 2021, for a lot of people, it's a program to turn on. Church is not a program. It's not a TV show. Church is a people, a people to serve. Church isn't a place to hear a message. It's a family to love. So is this your view of the church, a family to love? If not, something needs to change. Now, one of the best ways to see church as family is to come to a Sunday evening service. Now, I know I've been here around here long enough to know the moment I say that, those members of Mount Vernon who, for whatever reason, don't come to a Sunday evening service, feel guilty. It is not my goal to make you feel guilty. You are not in sin for not coming to a Sunday evening service. Right? This is a get to, not a have to. But having been someone who's been going to services like this for 25 years, I have to say, if you really want to experience what it's like to see church as family, Those Sunday evening services, when it's not just me sort of talking to you, but it's me asking people questions and hearing from them and seeing what's going on in your life? And how can we be praying for you? And where are you struggling? And how's evangelism? Where we engage in that kind of precipitory congregational life. It's an amazing way to experience the church as family. And so I'd encourage you to come and to be a part of that and to to see what I mean. You will learn better, you'll learn better how to love the brothers and sisters by coming on Sunday evening. Anyway, rethink church. Also, laying down your life means opening wide your heart. Opening wide your heart. Too many of us go through life with our hearts closed to one another. You know, we're slow to share our burdens. We're slow to be honest with one another. A closed heart is slow to give, to be generous. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so the answer is to open your heart, to open it up wide, to be quick to encourage, be, to be quick to show affection. Paul modeled this kind of, of openness. In 2 Corinthians 6.11, he said, our heart is wide open. He was speaking to the church in Corinth. It was a, an immature church. Uh, a lot of people in Corinth actually were not too keen on Paul. You know, for various reasons, they struggled with Paul. But Paul, that tender, godly man, he writes to them and says, our heart is wide open to you. What a sweet thing to, to say and to mean. In 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, being affectionately desirous of you. We desired not only to share the gospel of God, but our own selves as well. He opened his heart. He shared himself. Paul knew the importance of biblical truth. He's Paul, right? I don't even even need to ask you to raise your hand if, if, if you're named Paul. Paul knew the importance of biblical truth, but he also knew the value of an open heart, a heart that is willing to get to know others. He valued people. So he wasn't just a courageous truth warrior. He was a patient, loving friend. So is your heart open to others in the church? Let me encourage you to find someone in the church to whom you can open your heart honestly and in service. And by the way, if you're looking for the perfect person, to open your heart to, you need to find another church. We ain't it. You'll find sinful people to whom you can open your heart, which means it's risky. You might get bitten, but uh, we're sinners and we're working on it. All right. Open your heart. One other thing about, about what this brotherly love means to us, I would say laying down your life means making a difference. Laying down your life means making a difference. Verse 17 is a call to be generous to your brothers and sisters. Again, not for a moment, saying you shouldn't serve the community, you shouldn't be generous to the community. Galatians 6.10, go ahead and memorize it. But if you are indifferent, if you are indifferent to those within your own church, you have forsaken one of the most basic and fundamental commands in all of Scripture to love your brothers and your sisters. Now, of course, many of us, especially in the 21st century, especially in North Metro Atlanta, especially here at Mount Vernon, we have our material needs met. So does that mean this verse is of no good to us? Of course not. Here are some ways you might lay down your life for others. I'm going to do this quickly. It might mean pursuing full-time pastoral ministry or going on the mission field for the love of God's people. It might mean the time-consuming work of serving as an elder or a deacon for the love of God's people. It might mean spending a Saturday preparing a Sunday school lesson or cleaning out a member's gutters for the love of God's people. It might mean making a meal even when he said he didn't need anything for the love of God's people. It might mean getting the kids up early, to get to the church gathering so that you can be an encouragement to others for the love of God's people. It might mean keeping track of prayer requests, remembering the trial of a brother or sister, infertility, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a parent, the loss of a child, remembering and praying and checking in for the love of God's people. It might mean carving out time to spend with a brother or sister, reading the Bible together, praying together, reading a good Christian book together, discipling one another, even when it's inconvenient, and it's always inconvenient for the love of God's people. And for all of us, it means being joyfully open-handed with what we have, in this particular case, for the love of God's people. Right. That was the first point, love God's people. Second, walk by God's Spirit. just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, again, it's tempting to think that if you know those three tests, sound doctrine, right living, brotherly love, that you know First John. But John has more to say. John knows that it is possible to pass those three tests. In other words, to be able to say you know what? I think I've done it. I think my doctrine's right. You know, I'm not Jesus, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking in holiness. You know, I don't love people as good as I ought to, but I'm really trying to think you check those boxes and everything is okay. And yet, once again, you don't necessarily feel close to the Lord. You're still struggling with assurance. John knows that. And he knows that the Christian life cannot be reduced to checking A few boxes, however biblical those boxes may be, the battle for assurance, the battle to know you know Jesus, is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. And it must be fought with and in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is not an impersonal force from Star Wars, but is, in fact, the third person of the Trinity. He's not an it. He is a he. He is God, the Spirit the one who opens our eyes to the truths of the gospel, the one who grants us life, who empowers us to live in holiness. And not only that, the Holy Spirit kindly assures us that we are Christians. Think of Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. In other words, bearing witness with us inside of us that we are God's children. Now, John knows. After having these three tests unpacked, sound doctrine, right living, brotherly love, he knows that some believers will still struggle. Now, I want you to know that verses 19 and 20 uh, are notoriously difficult to interpret. And commentary to commentary is going to disagree. Some are going to view this as really kind of a, a sharp rebuke. Like, you're not loving the brothers and God knows it. That's very possible that that's what he's saying. Others see it more as an encouragement. And that's really the way that that I'm sharing it with you now. I take it to be a word of comfort to those wondering, what do I do when I've got the sound doctrine, I've got the brotherly love, I've got the right living, but I still feel like I'm flying in the fog. All right, so that's where I'm coming from. Notice how John's paragraph begins and ends with the question of assurance. Notice that. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. will know. it's assurance. Notice how the paragraph ends, verse 24. And by this, we know that he abides in us. Now, these are different words, right? Being in the truth, of the truth, uh, abiding in us. Different words, different images, same idea. Uh, to be of the truth is to be of Christ. Darius started us off today reminding us, Jesus is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. Christ is that. John 14, 7. It's Christ who abides in us. We know that from John 15, 5. So John begins and ends this paragraph by arguing, all right, you can know, you can know that you belong to Jesus. But notice how you know, at least here in this paragraph. Notice how you know. Notice who gets the credit for your knowledge of Christ abiding in you. Again, verse 24, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So I take this to mean that assurance of our salvation is a spiritual gift from God who has in fact given us the Spirit as a gift. Now what does this look like? So, admittedly, I am, I am reading this paragraph in light of verse 24. And I'm saying, what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to, to work assurance in your life? Here's what I think is, is going on. In chapter 3, verse 18, John, again, has been teaching about these three tests, sound doctrine, right living, brotherly love. All right, all the way through chapter 3, verse 18. Then, being a tender and careful shepherd, he knows someone may still be thinking, I think I've done all this. To the best of my knowledge, my doctrine is pure. Again, my hands are clean. I'm leaning into the body of Christ, but I don't feel that love for God. I'm not sure he really loves me. I don't feel like I'm safe and secure in his hands. What do I do? And John answers effectively, little child, don't forget the Holy Spirit. You aren't alone in this battle. The Lord is with you. He's always with you. He is your assurance. How do I know? Because of the Holy Spirit he's given you. Again, how is the Spirit active in our lives, showing us his presence? So many ways to answer that question. I want to answer it the way I think John is answering it. So I'd say the Spirit draws our attention to the love of God the Father. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Right. If you are a Christian and your heart condemns you, meaning you just aren't sure God has saved you, your heart is If you're a Christian and that's how you're feeling, your heart is misguided. It's misinformed. Your heart needs correction. The spirit points you to your heavenly father. Trust him. He is greater than your heart, meaning he is more reliable than your feelings your instincts, your gut, right? You can trust him in no small part because he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows everything you've done, and he still sees you through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ. You can't hide anything from him, and frankly, you don't need to hide anything from him. You are always an open book before the Lord. Deleting your history does nothing in God's mind. He knows everything. And this means you can go to God the Father in prayer. You can approach him boldly. John writes about this in verse 21. We have confidence before God. When we're not condemned, when we recognize what God has done, we have confidence before him. He's talking about prayer. You can go to God as a forgiven sinner. You should go to God as a forgiven sinner as an adopted child. Now, look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. This does not mean that if you pray for a BMW, you're going to get it. It does mean that if God is your Father who longs to give you good gifts, He will not withhold assurance from you. He will not withhold faith from you. He will not withhold mercy from you or grace from you or any other good gift that He promises to lavish on those who love Him. Put your hope in Him, turn to Him in prayer. So that's the Holy Spirit's work, putting your eyes on the Father who loves you. But that's not all. The Spirit does more than point us to the Father. The Spirit points us to the Son. Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. You must believe in the Son. You must believe in Jesus as God, the Son incarnate. To be a Christian, Jesus simply cannot be a great example to you. He can't be like a really, really wise rabbi who found a way to navigate the difficulties of life in a really godly way. He's got to be more to you than that. He can't just be a great teacher, like the greatest philosopher who ever lived. Right? That's of no good to you spiritually. He's got to be God. He's got to be God in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. That's Jesus. And only then do you have a Savior able to die in your place and atone for your sins. Your faith in Christ has to be more than intellectual. You have to trust him. It's not enough to believe he died for sinners. You have to believe he died for you. It's not enough to believe he he rose from the dead. You have to believe he rose for you. And some people hear this and they they say to themselves, well, I think I know this. (laughs) Like preaching to the choir. (laughs) I know this. But how do I know for sure it's me? I mean how, how, how can I know How can I know it's, it's for me? And the Spirit works in your heart and says to you, "Stop basing your assurance on the greatness of your faith and start basing it on the greatness of Christ. That's how the Spirit works. He puts your eye on the Father and he puts your eye on the son. and he says, it's not about the, the strength of your faith, it's about the strength of you're God. He's the rock, not you. You're the tissue paper. He's the rock. Now, what about what about, okay, what about sound living? What about sound, sound, sound doctrine? Right? What about brotherly love? Well, John is so clear. Verse 22, God hears the prayers of the righteous, those who keep his commandments. So if you think you can just drop kick righteousness out of the equation because of this paragraph, you're wrong. I mean, the, the basic assumption is if you've been born again. You're going to please the Lord in how you live. It's right there in verse 22. As far as brotherly love, brotherly love is so important that John says, and this is the commandment, singular, that you believe in the Son and that you love the brothers and sisters. But it's not that loving the brothers and sisters and believing in Jesus are the same thing. It's that loving is inevitable. It's inevitable. If you really believe in Jesus, you are going to love the family of God. But never forget verse 24. How do you know Christ is in you? How do you know Christ abides in you? Here's what the Bible says by the Spirit whom he has given you. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so important? Believe it or not, we may subtly have a wrong view of what a Christian is. Now, I'm not denying that if I came up to you and asked you, What is a Christian? I'm not saying you're necessarily going to give me the wrong answer. But sometimes our head and our heart aren't on the same page. And sometimes in our heart, we don't really know what a Christian is. Or we may think a Christian is someone who has good theology, goes to church twice on Sunday. Remember that Sunday evening thing, right? Reads the Bible every day. and We don't intend to, but, but we've sort of boiled down like authentic Christianity to a few beliefs or a few actions. And John tells us, well, a Christian is someone filled with the Spirit of God, and, and I would say, by extension, walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5. If you live by the Spirit, you will also walk by the Spirit. Like when you have the Holy Spirit, when you have the Holy Spirit, everything you do is done in dependence upon God. You trust God to sustain you. You trust God to encourage you to delight you, right? The, the Christian has the spirit who convicts one of sin and grows her in love for others. The spirit, the spirit gives you a hunger for God's word and a love for God's people and fills you with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Like, where does all that good stuff come from? It's a gift of the spirit, right? It's not because you got up early to pray. It's because this spirit is at work in you. It's what a Christian is. I don't know if you've ever gone up Stone Mountain, but you can walk up Stone Mountain, which is great, and you can take the thing that I don't know what it's called, the sky ride. You can take the sky ride up Stone Mountain. We're going to ignore the trucks that can also go up there for purposes of this illustration. You can walk up, you can take the sky ride up. Neither is a good analogy of the Christian life, because the Christian life isn't merely about you walking up the mountain. Nor is it merely about God pulling you up to the top of the mountain. It's sort of like you're walking, but lo and behold, God is carrying you. Like, I guess you could go in a sky ride and walk. Maybe that would be what we want to do. You know, go in the sky ride and walk at the same time. You're feeling really good about yourself. But at the end of the day, you know, you're relying on the cables, right? This is how you know, this is how you know Christ abides in you. This is how you know you know the truth, right? Not not fundamentally by your works, not fundamentally, but by the Spirit who abides in you and by His grace and for His glory enables you to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. Love God's people. Walk by God's Spirit. Third, and most briefly, not, not less importantly, But just because I've not convinced you all to give me two hours, we'll work on that. I'm still relatively young. Third, submit to God's word. Submit to God's word. Now, I came to faith in a charismatic church with a heavy emphasis on the spiritual gifts, the miraculous spiritual gifts in particular. And I'm thankful for that church because I heard the gospel there. Like I was saved by people who were Charismatics. Maybe some of you are Charismatics. I was saved by your people. Your people were my people, and they shared the gospel with me. And I came to believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for me and that he rose from the dead. And I'm really thankful for that. I'm thankful for that and for that church and for those people. There was at the two charismatic churches that I attended a priority on the experience of the Holy Spirit above the careful study and authority of God's word. They just, uh, this is me telling you my experience. There is a priority, play a premium placed on having the Spirit, living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit versus um, just knowing, knowing what the Spirit has revealed in the Bible and seeking to live your life in accordance with it. The church believed this, but if you lived in that stream, this wasn't really prioritized. What was really prioritized was your, your feeling of the Spirit of God in, in your life. Now, having just told his readers that they can know they are Christians by the Spirit, John makes an important point. He says just because someone says he has the Holy Spirit doesn't mean he has the Holy Spirit. Now, every claim made by any Christian must be in accord with the Bible. And I think that's the the heartbeat of that first paragraph of chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. I would just note that in order to, how do we know that Jesus has come in the flesh? You know it from the Bible, and it is the only place you're going to get that information. You can know a lot about God from the sunset and from the trees and from ladybugs and caterpillars and stuff. God's powerful, creative, good. You can learn all that just by opening your eyes. The only way you're going to know that Jesus is God in the flesh is from the Bible. Full stop. Verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error." John knows that people will use his teaching on the Holy Spirit to argue they are above criticism. Like when I talked to the man many years ago who was planning to divorce his wife, and he had no biblical grounds to divorce his wife, and when gently probing, what was going on in his mind, he said, well, God would not have me be married to her, as if to shut down the conversation. He never used the name Holy Spirit, but the result was the same. He was claiming direct communion with God and using that claim to effectively shut me down. John responds in two ways. He says, first, anyone who claims to have the Spirit must confess, verse 2, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If you were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember this is exactly what the false teachers, the antichrists of 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27 denied. This is exactly what they were denying. The Jesus they were following wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. The Spirit, you see, always points us to the Son, to the true Son, to the Son of God, as revealed in the scriptures. And any teacher who denies the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any teacher who denies the full divinity and full humanity of Jesus is in the spirit of the Antichrist, is of the world. And it doesn't matter if they claim to have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. Second, John argued that anyone who truly has the spirit will humbly submit to the word of God. Look at verse 6. We, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error." Now, I think in verse 6, the we there is is John talking about himself and the other apostles. It, It could be John collectively speaking about the message of the church. But I think he's saying, he's speaking as an apostle. We have the Bible because God spoke through men like John and Peter and James and Paul. These apostles wrote down what God revealed to them. And then the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, having been born again, acknowledged their words to be true. And I think this is why he says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. In other words, I don't think those words would ever come out of my mouth referring to me, like, if you really know God, you're going to listen to me. You know, if I'm, maybe if I'm like just reading from the Bible, but I recognize my words are not inspired truth. But John is an apostle, and he can say whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. Right? And by this, by this apostolic teaching, by the Bible, this is how we know to discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. How do we know truth from error? We don't feel it. Sometimes our feelings actually lead us to believe false things, and we test everyone and everything by asking, does this accord with Scripture, with the Bible? And this is how we submit ourselves to God's word. This is how we test the spirits. It's how we test those who claim to be spirit filled teachers. What does this mean for us? I'll close with two answers. First, unpacking God's word is the most important thing we can do as a church. Unpacking God's Word is not the only thing we can do as a church, but it is the most important thing we can do as a church. It's not all we do. We sing, we pray, we serve one another, we baptize, we take the Lord's Supper. All that's important. But everything starts with the Word of God. We go to Scripture with a commitment to do what the Bible says. The Word of God is our authority. So, yes, at Mount Vernon we have elders, and elders are to be obeyed. Hebrews 13, 17. But even our elders are to be obeyed only insofar as their words are in obvious and humble submission to the word of God. In that sense, at the most fundamental level, I am not in authority over you. God's word is an authority over you, and I am only to be trusted insofar as it's obvious that I am humbly submitting myself to God's word and seeking to feed you, not my own opinions, but the truths of the Bible. Sure, there are t- I have opinions, by the way. Uh, there are times probably when I share them. They just aren't the word of God. And it's so important to know the difference. And those in authority, have an, some in authority have an uncanny way of using that authority to manipulate people. And the only way I know to protect you from the manipulation of false teachers and even teachers who look really good but are in fact false is by praying you have a hunger for God's word and the wisdom to go to it to test everything that I say or anything anyone says to you claiming to be an application of the Word of God. Unpacking God's Word is, therefore, the most important thing we can do as a church. Second, submitting to God's Word is the most important thing you can do as a Christian. Submitting to God's Word is the most important thing you can do as a Christian. Has the Bible ever rubbed you the wrong way? You don't want to publicly answer that question, do you? Has the Bible ever corrected your view on anything? Maybe on how you view money or on how you view your spouse, how you view race. Maybe your understanding of the role of women in ministry. Maybe your views on the importance of the church. Maybe your view of abortion or sexuality. If you have the Spirit of God, you will submit to the Word of God, and this requires a willingness to be corrected, And so when I say submitting to God's word is the most important thing you can do as a Christian, what I'm saying is, are you ever corrected by the word of God? Because if the Bible never corrects you, then I wonder, are you really submitting to it? So perhaps the the hard question that needs to be asked is, when was the last time the Bible corrected you? I began the sermon talking about the pilot lost in the fog. We... We have all been there. We're all going to be there. How did you fly out? How do you fly out? If you love God's people, you have brothers and sisters who can show you the way out of the fog. Lean into the church. The body of Christ matters. If you walk by God's Spirit, you know the Lord is with you. Even when everyone else has abandoned you, you're not alone. Christ is with you. He's with you in the fog. It means you won't stay there very long. And if you submit to God's word, you won't ever be lost. God's word will always lead you to Christ, and you can rest in him. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the wisdom of John. Lord, we know he was just a man uh, writing what he knew to be true, but we know that he was a man inspired by the Holy Spirit in a way that, that we've never been similarly inspired so that he was able to deliver for us that which is true, so that when we read John, we are reading your words. So we ask you now to make us not merely students of the Bible, but men, women, and children eager to be corrected by the Bible. Where would you correct us today in this call to love your people, to walk by the Spirit, and to submit to the Word? Help us now to lean into Christ, to rest in him,